0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on communicating with the cognitively impaired. We're going to define cognitive impairment, just kind of go over it real briefly so you know what you're looking at. Explore symptoms of cognitive impairment in Alzheimer's, dementias, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Now, we're not going to go through each one of those individually because what we're talking about is cognitive impairment in general, and we're going to look at those symptoms. Review the American Psychiatric Association Treatment Guidelines, APA, for counselors working with persons with Alzheimer's. So the APA puts out the treatment guidelines. They're really designed, as I said yesterday, for psychiatrists, but there is an element in there for what can counselors do as part of a multidisciplinary team. So we we talk about that little part of the APA guidelines in this particular class. We'll identify and spend most of our time actually talking about methods for effective communication, how to handle difficult behaviors, and we'll finish up reviewing specific issues and interventions for a person with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Now, if you were in the class last week, you remember that people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder may communicate, may express themselves at the level of, for example, a 25-year-old but they may only understand at the level of an 8- or a 12-year-old. So that can create problems where we may perceive them as being um, resistant or not paying attention or, you know, there's a variety of attributions we can make for why they're not getting what we're saying But we need to pay attention to uh, what's going on with them to see is there something else maybe going on that has never been diagnosed, such as an FASD, because a lot of adults um, are are out there who have an undiagnosed uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Likewise, as we talked about the other day, if somebody is um, self-detoxing, from alcohol or any other drug but alcohol in particular they may start exhibiting signs of cognitive impairment so that not only lets us know that we have to deal with the cognitive impairment in, in counseling but if they are self detoxing from alcohol specifically we need to make sure that they get referred for medical care because an alcohol related brain disorder uh, can be prevented or at least interrupted if they get treatment right away. So, on to cognitive impairment. Development of multiple cognitive deficits manifested by both memory impairment, so it can be they have difficulty learning new information or difficulty recalling previously learned information. And some people, a lot of the patients with cognitive impairment um like Alzheimer's disease and and dementia, will have difficulty remembering the recent past, but they can remember things that happened a while ago. So their short-term memory is more problematic for them than something that happened 20 years ago. Now, somebody who has, for example, um, brain damage, they got into a car accident, and they've got cognitive deficit from that, they may not be able to learn things now or they may be able to, but they may have gaps in their memory from way back. So we don't want to assume that someone with a cognitive impairment has or does not have long-term memory and has or does not have short-term. It's going to be up to us to really ask questions and ferret out what they're able to do and figure out how much they're able to learn new information. Because a lot of what we do in counseling is help them take information from the past Integrate it with something new that we teach them. So if they have difficulty learning new information, we're going to have to go low and slow and They may have one or more of the following cognitive disturbances Aphasia which is a language disturbance. They may speak very very slowly They may have word salad, you know, they're just speaking, but it doesn't make any sense They may be able to hear language and interpret it, but not be able to communicate back um So there are a variety of different problems that can come out. Apraxia is inability or impaired ability to carry out motor activities despite intact motor function, such as brushing their teeth. Agnosia is failure to recognize or identify objects despite intact sensory function. So if you point to an apple or you give them an apple, they may not be able to find the word for it. And disturbances in executive functioning, and that's basically what we're talking about with um, activities of daily living, planning, organizing, sequencing, abstracting. Um, So if you ask them, you know, when you get up in the morning, what do you do? And then what do you do next? And then what do you do after that? They may not be able to put that together. So um, as far as independent living goes, that can be a problem, and that's one of those things that you might create a chart for to help people remember what they're supposed to do i had a friend oh well my mother had a friend family friend when we were when i was very little he got shot in the head and he had significant cognitive and visual impairment after that but he would do things like he couldn't remember he'd go into the bathroom to brush his teeth and he'd get ready and he'd get the toothbrush out then he couldn't remember how to put the toothpaste on the toothbrush or he'd forget why he walked into the room. And it was very frustrating for him to try to do that. And he had a small child at home, so remembering have I given the baby her medication and all that stuff became more of an issue. So executive functioning incorporates all of that. Being able to figure out what you have done, what you haven't done yet, and how to put things together. Even cooking, you know, what do you do first? You get the pan out, you put the water in the pan, you bring it to a boil, then you put the pasta in. You know, that's a sequence. We don't think about how much stuff we do each day that's in sequence because it's just automatic. And when people start to develop cognitive impairments, this can be really, really frustrating because they've been doing this for 50 years and now they can't remember how to do it. And it's exasperating. Other symptoms that we're going to be looking for kind of run the gamut. So this is why I really um, wanted to do this class today to focus on the fact that some clients that we see may have temporary cognitive impairment, may have permanent cognitive impairment, and may have undiagnosed cognitive impairment, whether it be temporary or permanent. So since we interact with them on a... uh, Weekly basis, at least, Um, and we have time to sit down and do a comprehensive biopsychosocial. So, we're you know theoretically spending an hour, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on your agency. We get a lot more detail and a much more in depth picture than some other types of providers may. So, this is a place where we can really advocate for clients if we're noticing that they're having problems with attention. They can't seem to focus um, when you're talking to them. They're like off in la-la land. And, you know, my son will typically do that some. He's a teenager, and that's partly developmental. If he has to focus, he can focus. But if he's not interested, he'll just kind of drift. Um, with adults, you know, you want to pay attention to the setting and are they able to maintain attention when they have to? Can we get them to maintain attention for a short period of time? Um, perception. We want to look at, are, is their perception um, realistic about what's going on? Do they have good insight and judgment? Uh, sometimes with cognitive impairment, my grandmother went through this, um, where she was getting older and she was having more more and more difficulty driving um and she was starting to forget things and she couldn't see how her driving abilities were being impaired and she was not ready or willing to give up driving so we had to work with her in terms of helping her accept the fact that at at this point, um, and eventually we went through the same thing when she had to go into a long-term care facility because her cognitive impairment got so bad. Uh, So insight and judgment is one of those big things that we'll see in especially um, elderly patients uh, or people who have brain injury, where that starts going down somewhat dramatically. And and it may start kind of slow. My grandfather went through the same thing where He would walk out and he'd have his socks on, but he would have forgotten to put on his shoes and he wouldn't even realize that it wasn't okay to walk outside without shoes. Um, So knowing these different um, signs that we might be looking for in our clients when they come into our facility, what kind of insight do they have about their problem, but also what kind of insight do they have about why they're there, what services or what, what our purpose is, And what's their judgment in terms of how bad their problem is, what they need to do in order to um, get better. And and so we want to talk about the side effects, if you will, of the problems they're experiencing, whatever brings them to our office, whether it's depression or anxiety or anger problems. You know, these problems are causing problems in what areas of your life? Let's see how it's affecting you and, you know, when you look at that all kind of spread out, do you think it's a problem? And we can look at their judgment that way. Organization, pretty self-explanatory. Orientation to person, place, time. Uh, So our general mini mental status exam that we're going to typically do. Processing speed. Now, as people age and with certain mental health issues like major depressive disorder. Processing speed can be very slow. So we want to look at it, you know, holistically and say, is this cognitive impairment on itse- in, it's- in itself like dementia or do we need to refer for early onset Alzheimer's? Or could this be to- due to a substance, due to clinical depression or due to the natural effects of aging? And there's ov- obviously a difference when we're talking about processing speed. Somebody who takes a minute, to get it versus somebody who takes 5 minutes to get it or they they never do. And this is going to really affect what kind of treatment we put people in because people with difficulty in orientation and processing speed, but especially processing speed, problem solving and reasoning are going to have a lot more difficulty in group therapy and especially like psychoeducational group therapy. So they're going to need probably more one-on-one interactions or to be in groups with other people who also have slower processing speed. Um, Cognitive impairment may come out in terms of difficulty problem solving, difficulty reasoning, or metacognition. And the definition of metacognition is processes used to plan, monitor, and assess one's understanding and performance. So can you look back and go, yes, I've got that? Or can somebody explain something to you? And you evaluate in your own mind whether you understand what needs to be done. From a clinician's standpoint, this would apply when we're giving somebody homework for the week. So we talk about uh, what their goals are for the upcoming week with them and what their homework's supposed to be. We ask them, you know, do, do they understand? Do they have any questions? If their metacognition is good, they'll look over it and they'll either say yes or no and they'll be on point. If their medic cognition is poor, they may go over whatever they think they can remember and say, yeah, I got it, no problem. Walk out, and then they come back the next week. They haven't done their homework. They may have forgotten that they even had it. So we want to evaluate, are they being resistant for some reason, which, you know, I look at resistance in terms of whatever we gave to them was they didn't see the benefit to it. So we need to tip that decisional balance. But that, that aside, were they not motivated to do it or were they not able to do it? Was were their metacognitive abilities just not there and they just didn't get it? Other causes of cognitive or causes of cognitive impairment, we're Nikki Korsakoff syndrome. We talked about that last week. Um, basically a deficiency in thiamine that is caused by heavy, prolonged drinking and or self or detoxing from alcohol uh, can cause problems that lead to cognitive impairment or alcohol related brain damage. Now if patients are seen by a physician early as soon as they start demonstrating any signs and they are tested, shows that their thiamine levels are low, doctor gives them you know a booster of thiamine, a lot of times it will arrest the problems and may even reverse the problems. So but it's really important with alcohol to make sure that people get referred to a physician um, and are supervised on detox even if they're not an alcoholic even if they don't meet the definition of alcohol use disorder if they've been using heavily and decide that they want to quit we need to refer to prevent cognitive prevent cognitive impairment now vascular dementia can happen to just about anybody strokes people with high blood pressure are at a greater risk of stroke. People who smoke are at a greater risk of stroke. There are a lot of things that can cause strokes. um, And strokes prevent oxygen and blood from getting to the brain. Um, So it's important to understand that strokes can cause vascular dementia, even mini strokes. And sometimes people will have uh, multiple mini strokes in a row. I've known a lot of Not even elderly people, middle aged people who've had multiple mini strokes. So it didn't, there wasn't any like acute episode where they were falling out. There was no seizure type activity, no passing out, but they would almost get catatonic for 30 seconds or so. And the doctor ended up diagnosing it as, you know, repeated mini strokes. But anyway, so we want to be aware that strokes don't present the same. So if a client reports, that they're starting to have problems remembering and changes in behavior. If their significant others report that they have times where it seems like the client zones out, they may need to be referred for assessment to make sure that they haven't had a stroke or multiple mini strokes. And these can also happen under the influence of substances so the person doesn't even realize it because they're already anesthetized, basically. And anything else that impedes blood flow to the brain, like um, autoerotic asphyxia, um, which is when people intentionally choke themselves or have someone else choke them to the point of blacking out in order to increase their sexual pleasure. In order to do that, they have to cut off blood flow to the brain, which can cause problems with uh, uh, cognition. Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease. Not exactly sure what causes it yet. There are a lot of correlations between if you have this, then you may have a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's. But some people will develop it. And if you have a patient that has a family member, a blood relative that has developed Alzheimer's, it's good for them to educate themselves about the best things that they can do to prevent Alzheimer's. Some of them, of course, are healthy diet, exercise, and Keeping stress levels low, but fetal alcohol spectrum disorders also cause cognitive impairment. And this doesn't mean mom had to be an alcoholic, this means mom had to drink at some point during the pregnancy, especially during that first trimester. Think about it, okay? If you've ever had a baby, and you know, sometimes even if you're trying to have a baby, you may not know until four weeks or so after you're pregnant that you're pregnant well that's four weeks that that little peanut has been being exposed to alcohol um so and people who unintentionally get pregnant they have that oopsie it may be as much as two months before they actually realize that they're pregnant i mean home pregnancy tests unless they've gotten a lot better it's four or six weeks after you're actually pregnant before they'll show up so if somebody doesn't realize that they're pregnant then they may be drinking during that whole time. And even if it's not to excess, it can still cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So when that happens, we've got to deal with the guilt and grief in the family, but we've also got to address the issue with junior. When you hear, when you're doing a um, developmental assessment on an adult client, and they say that they weren't a planned pregnancy, that's one of those clues that you might want to listen for in terms of, Could this person have been exposed to alcohol in utero? Brain injury from car accident, football games, a fall, boxing. You know, boxers are some of the most notorious for having cognitive impairments if they've been in the ring for many years and gotten several blows to the head. And temporarily, People can have cognitive impairments if they have significant hyper or hypoglycemia. They can get very confused. They can have a hard time talking. They can slur their words. Um, So, and and I put temporarily because as soon as the blood sugar's back in level, cognitive impairment goes away. But if you have a client who suddenly starts showing symptoms of cognitive impairment and you know they haven't been drinking five minutes ago or using or whatever the case is, This is one of those areas you might want to look at, especially if that patient is diabetic. So all of that is talk, you know, we've been talking a lot about prevention and how this can happen. So what do we need to do? Well, to screen for it, there are two things. um, The 88 and the mini cog, which, um, yes, I want to open that. Your 88 dementia screening has eight questions, and it asks about problems with judgment, less interest in abilities, repeats the same thing over and over again, like stories or statements, Um, trouble learning how to use a tool, appliance, or gadget. And this isn't just, you know, like me when you hand me a device and I look at it and I go, oh, there's a lot of buttons. Um, (laughs) This is actually having difficulty learning something that they shouldn't have that much difficulty with forgets the correct month or year, trouble handling complicated financial affairs like balancing a checkbook, paying income taxes, paying bills, trouble remembering appointments, and daily problems with thinking and or memory. Now, when I go through those questions, I can answer, you know, yeah, that sounds like me to a few of them. So again, we really want to look in terms of context for this person. Has there been a significant change? Um, You know, I know I am Electronically impaired. So, if I'm trying to learn how to operate a new device, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, and I know that I per- periodically will forget what month it is because the days just kind of blend together. But that's not a significant change for me. Uh, so, we want to pay attention to what's going on to see if something has changed for that person over time. So, the 88 is a nice, quick eight question thing that we can do with clients. The mini-cog is a little bit more um, in-depth, and it involves having people remembering lists of words, doing a clock drawing, recalling the words that we just talked to them about. Um, People with cognitive impairments may have difficulty putting all the numbers in the right place and putting the hands in and telling you what time it is. Again, we want to use cultural sensitivity, if you will, Thinking about, you know, youth today hardly ever see a, a clock with hands because almost everything is digital. So we want to make sure we're not setting them up. But I think most everybody still at some point works with a works, works with a clock. So when do we screen for somebody? When do we go, oh, there might be a problem? If the person, family members, or others express concern about changes in the person's memory or thinking, screen for it. Can't hurt. Doesn't take that long if you observe problems or changes in the patient's memory or thinking, if the patient is 80 or older, if the patient has low educational attainment. Now, again, we want to look at what might be causing this low educational attainment. If they were in school and they couldn't seem to learn the material, you know, we want to look and see if there's something like uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders um, or, or something else going on that might be impairing their ability to learn. Um, History of type 2 diabetes can increase risk for cognitive impairment. Stroke, depression, trouble managing money or medications, or if they just have episodes, or I say just, if they have episodes of delirium, you know, confusion and disorientation, a lot of people who are older will wake up in the middle of the night and be kind of disoriented. So. You may choose to do an assessment at that point to see if they may start be starting to develop some cognitive deficits and there's uh, down here in the corner, if you go to the National uh, Institute of Health, there is a uh, paper on dilemma, delirium, and older patients. Important aspects of management, now to the nitty-gritty. We need to educate patients and families about the illness. So at this point, we've done the screening, we've identified that there's some sort of cognitive impairment. It may be longstanding, it may be just starting. But let's educate them about what it is, what the prognosis is, and what the treatments are. Then we'll want to talk about sources of additional care and support, such as support groups, respite care, nursing homes and long-term care facilities, depending on how independent that person is, you know, if we're talking about somebody with significant FASD, they may never move out of mom and dad's house. Um, If we're talking about somebody who is starting to develop early onset Alzheimer's, they may be doing fine right now, but five years from now, they may need to be in long-term care. So let's look at what resources this particular person might need and support groups, not only for the patient but also for the family members because dealing with the fact that your loved one has some cognitive problems is developing alzheimer's um, has fasd can be very traumatic for people even if it's not if you're helping someone who's lost a lot of independence um, caregivers need respite care so it's important to make sure that they have access to some of that, whether the person, the client goes to um, a uh, clubhouse type setting during the day or a day treatment type setting, or if somebody comes in and provides respite care for the primary caregiver. You also want to talk about the need for financial and legal planning due to the patient's eventual incapacity. So assuming that this is something that is just now starting, um, you know, early onset Alzheimer's, dementia, The person needs and the family needs to know that they've got a plan for power of attorney for medical and financial decisions, have an up-to-date will, and really look at the cost of long-term care and plan out how they're going to pay for that. Now, we don't do a lot of that as counselors, but we do need to educate people about, you know, these are the things you need to consider, and we can make linkages within the community to help people connect with the resources. If you um, go to the Alzheimer's Association website, you can also find a a bunch of really good links to help you find those local linkages. Behavior-oriented treatments. Identify the antecedents and consequences of problem behaviors. So if you've got a client who gets upset and, you know, starts hitting themselves on the head or, you know, just kind of loses their stuffing it's important to understand what things will trigger that and what the consequences are when the person's triggered, what happens. So you can figure out how to reduce the frequency of the behaviors by changing the environment to alter the antecedents or consequences, which is, you know, the long way of saying, figure out what triggers the person and try not to have that happen. Or if you know it's going to happen, maybe the person always gets, um, really stressed out when there's a thunderstorm and some some people will okay so if you know that bad weather's coming what can you do to help this patient stay calm and stay oriented you can uh, use stimulation oriented treatments which include recreational therapy art therapy music therapy and pet therapy along with other formal and informal means of maximizing pleasurable activities for patients so basically we want to keep those connections, those wires in the brain going. We want to keep their brains active because kind of like muscles, your brain's not a muscle, but kind of like muscles, if you don't use them, you'll lose them. So we want to make sure that people are staying engaged and they're staying involved to the best of their ability. Emotion-oriented treatments include supportive psychotherapy and can be employed to address issues of loss in early stages of dementia. So as people start to develop a cognitive impairment, a lot of them are still cognitive or cognizant enough to realize that there's a change and understand what's getting ready to happen. And that is devastating to a lot of people. So working through that grief process, helping them get to acceptance, helping them get a sense of control over the things that they have a control over can be really helpful during this period. And finally, according to the APA, reminiscence therapy has some modest research support for improvement of mood and behavior, which is exactly what it sounds like. Talking with somebody about their past. You know, tell me about when you were a child. Tell me about growing up. <clears throat> on the farm. Tell me about something else that's important to the person. And this is helpful too, just as an aside, with patients who are hospitalized for some reason, because if they're talking about something that makes them happy and bring, brings back positive memories, it gets all the, for lack of a clinical term, cognitive mojo uh, or positive mojo going. So they are are um, able to heal a little bit better. It hel- helps improve Their healing process the key phrase we want to think about when we're talking uh, about working with people with cognitive impairments is tolerate anticipate and don't agitate Um, a lot of times if a person with a cognitive impairment gets to the point where they are agitated. It's not because they're trying to be mean or disrespectful or anything like that. They feel completely out of control and they're freaking out. Um, So we want to, you know, try to figure out, anticipate problems that may occur and tolerate what's going on with them because, you know, obviously we don't want them to hurt themselves, but sometimes they're going to. Engage in some behaviors that we can find a little bit frustrating, but if they're not harmful if they're not hurtful if they're not Infringing on anyone else's rights, you know We've got to take it on a case-by-case basis as to how to handle that behavior Otherwise you spend too much time just constantly correcting So how do we communicate? written oral and body language are three ways that we can communicate Let the client write draw Or speak to communicate whatever works for them. Sometimes they will prefer to draw you a picture Sometimes they'll prefer to write it down because they have a hard time articulating the words and this can be because their dentures aren't fitting Right. This can be because they can't find the words. There's a lot of reasons Um, And if it's because their dentures aren't fitting, right, we need to refer for that, too, but whatever way they feel most effective at communicating we want to encourage them to do that let's just get it out there use real objects when possible when you're talking about um you know do you need your glasses holding the glasses up so they can see them um or you know if you want them to go outside and at my grandmother's long-term care facility they used to go out and play um beach volleyball with you know the the big blow-up beach balls, not the hard ones. And so they would hold up the ball and say, you know, everybody, it's time to go outside and play volleyball. To cue people in, it would give them a uh, particular object to use. If you're working, you know, in the home of someone who has a communication issue and it's time for them to, I don't have a toothbrush here, but if it's time for them to go brush their teeth, you can hold up the toothbrush or you can point to the chart where it has a picture of a toothbrush and say it's time to brush your teeth obviously, if you can just use words, that's great. But for some people, they will need the visual reminder. Um, You can use picture books and posted lists. Um, And we're going to talk in a little while about keeping the lists to a minimum. If you've got too much stuff everywhere, it will be overwhelming, and the person really won't know where to look, and they can't filter out all the stimuli. I know sometimes I walk into preschool classrooms, and there's just stuff. Everywhere. There's letters and numbers and sayings and poems, and I'm just like completely overwhelmed myself. Um, so if you have somebody with cognitive impairment who needs guidance on what to focus on, keep the most important things, you know, on the walls or where they need on the cabinets, wherever they need to be, and try to keep ancillary stuff to a minimum. Uh, storyboards can be used to discuss a behavior incident. So, if the person has difficulty remembering what happened and putting it all together, using a storyboard that indicated that, you know, here you were and here John was, and you can also do this with um figurines. When John walked in, he got into your space and you pushed him or whatever happened and help the person visualize what happened. And then you can... Do the same thing to help the person visualize a better way to handle the situation. When you're working with somebody with cognitive impairment or with any sort of physical um, disability, make sure to use assistive devices, glasses, hearing aids, large font. They may have a lot more cognitive stuff on the ball than you're giving them credit for if they're not getting the information in a way that's meaningful and useful to them. Have spare reading glasses, hearing assistance devices handy when possible. So if you're a caregiver, um, spare reading glasses, sometimes the person can get by with the reading glasses that you get at Walmart if they can't find their prescription glasses. I know my daddy used to have five pairs. He had kept one in the car because he'd always forget them when, when he went out to dinner, uh, and hearing assistance and hearing aids are expensive, but you can get cheap ones, cheapish ones for about $150. It doesn't sound super cheap, but when we're talking about quality of life here. Um, so if the person can have an additional hearing aid, if they need it, in case they misplace theirs or the battery on theirs goes out, it's helpful. When you talk to them, get their attention. If somebody's watching TV, if they're watching their stories or, you know, I do it with my husband all the time. He'll be in the middle of watching some, some video on YouTube or whatever, and I'll say something to him, and he just totally doesn't respond. <laughs> and I'm like, hello? And he's like, huh, what? Um, because I didn't get his attention first, and he had already filtered out, our house is noisy, so he had filtered out all the additional stimulus. So it's important to get people's attention. Walk in the room, use their name, and say, you know, hi, Jane, how are you? Um orient them to who you are and why you're there some people will respond right away by saying hi doc how you doing others will kind of look at you quizzically and you can say you know i'm dr snipes do you remember we were talking about the fact that i'd come each week and help you with whatever you're going to help the person with Um, but orient them to the The reason that you're there, the reason that you're talking to them, Um, they may just think that you're a really friendly person who wanted to sit down. So the conversation will go very differently than if you remind them that there's a purpose. But establish rapport with them before jumping into business. Yes, we need to get billable hours. Yes, well, we do. But not, in my opinion, at the expense of the client. It doesn't take that long. Five minutes. To establish rapport before jumping into business with the client if I'm asking them to trust me and be be vulnerable and do all that kind of stuff I can at least give them five minutes to say hey how you doing how's the week been Um, you know tell me tell me what the best thing that happened to you last week was or you know it depends on where their cognitive impairments are you don't want to trigger frustration but or tell me about a story from your childhood I love hearing those just to get the person kind of warmed up a little bit and in a better mood, try to use simple language and you know, not talking down to them. And none of these interventions, obviously, are going to be appropriate for every person because some people with cognitive impairments are really still pretty on the ball. So, if you held up a toothbrush and said it's time to go brush your teeth, they would be quite offended. But if you've got somebody who's significantly cognitively impaired, that can be very helpful using the object. So you're going to have to gauge it based on the client. Speak slowly and distinctly. So, you know, the rate that I speak when I'm doing these probably would not be good for somebody with cognitive impairment. You want to slow it down, be more relaxed, kind of like you're sitting there having coffee with a friend. Ask them questions directly if they've got a nurse with them, if they've got a family member with them, please don't ask the family member, so tell me how John's been doing this week, especially not before asking John. John, tell me how you've been doing this week. Let him say it. And then if you want input from the caregiver, um, maybe tell me about your perception about how John's been doing. But don't have the caregiver speak for John unless John can't speak for himself at all. Um, If you're asking the caregiver about what's going on with John and John can't speak at all still maintain eye contact with John you know you can look over acknowledge the caregiver but you know just look at John i'm wondering how your week's been and the caregiver can give information as they see say, see fit but we don't want John to think that we're just in the room talking about him without including him because it is about him if it's too dark in a room turn on some lights But avoid so much light as to cause glare. Like in here, I've got fluorescent lights on and it depends on the day whether I want one or both of them on. Um, But glare can make them squint and go, you know, what's going on? Um, But too little light can also make it hard for them to get oriented to person, place, and time. Set a positive mood. If you're having a bad day, that's okay. Check it at the door set a positive mood when you go in there if that client is challenging to work with that's okay check it at the door look at it as a new day and say hey let's see what we can do today let's you know look at this as a new adventure um and it helps if you've got clients who like to laugh who like jokes um i always have a knock knock joke app on my phone the clean ones that you can use with little kids because For better or worse, I find those jokes amusing myself. So whatever, it doesn't take much to amuse me. Um, But getting people to laugh, and I always tell them, either laugh with me or laugh at me. I don't care, just laugh. And it can kind of break the tension. Um, Avoid using medical jargon. If you're talking about, um, you know, whatever they're going to have to do, don't use terms that are too complex. Talk simply. Have a client explain what he heard from you. So if you're talking about a diagnosis and you're explaining to him that, okay, this is alcohol-related brain damage, and the chances are that as long as you don't drink and you have a healthy nutrition program and get a lot of sleep and yada, 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 it won't progress any further and it could get better. Uh, Make sure that you have him articulate to you in some way what it is that he needs to do, and what the benefit is going to be to him. Um, and, and it depends on the client exactly how direct you are about that. With some clients you may go, so tell me again, what, it, what is it that you heard me say you need to do? Or you may be a little bit more abstract um, or subtle with your approach and having him explain when I work with clients, cognitive impairment or not, I spend the last 10 minutes of the session, we do a full hour, so at the 50-minute mark-ish, um, I spend the last 10 minutes of the session, I have them tell me what we talked about in session. So tell me what you think the salient points were with client with cognitive impairment. I would say, what do you think the important things were that we talked about today? Um, and, you know, that's... Those are the things I'm going to note down. What were the goals that you worked on last week? And what were your accomplishments? I'll note that down. What are your goals for next week? Write that down. And, um, you know, do you have any other questions? That way I'm getting my note out of the way. But the client is also rehashing you know, what what we discussed, what they learned, what they're supposed to do for next week. And if there's something that I think that's important that they left out, I might go, oh, and remember we talked about X and so. But by doing it together, they feel more included. I get my note done and I make sure that they understand everything that I want them to do and that we're all on the same page. With clients with um, cognitive difficulties, this can be really helpful because. You're asking them, okay, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff, so what is it that you're going to do this week? Um, Clients who have just experienced a significant trauma, this is also helpful with them because their ability to remember stuff, especially short-term memory, may not be great immediately after the trauma. So write things down, have them repeat back to you or explain to you um, what they need to do. And and as I said, write it down. If you're going to give somebody a homework assignment, write it down for them. Give them a handout. Don't expect them to remember uh, what you talked about in session. Don't give multi-part instructions to this particular population. Instead of asking, would you like to come in and sit down and have a snack, break it up. Say, why don't you come sit down here? Once they do, here's a snack. Or, would you like a snack? If you have to have a long conversation about something, break it into short talks of about 10 minutes. So, you know, this type of class, um, you know, if you're doing a psychoeducational group, you would want to talk for about 10 minutes or engage for about 10 minutes and then take a break. Try not to use abstract concepts and use yes or no, simple, answerable questions. So instead of saying, are you sleepy, ask, would you like to go to bed? Or are you thirsty? Would you like some tea? Um, If we're looking at depression, instead of saying, are you depressed, because that's still kind of general, you might ask about something that they like to do to see if they have that apathy going on. Would you like to go outside and play with the dog? And if they say, no, no, I just don't feel like it. Okay, that's giving me an idea about what's going on. Eliminate distractions as much as possible. Other people, you know, if you're in an assisted living facility, try to go to a private room or a room where it's quiet. Remove animals. If you're doing a home visit and they've got six dogs running around, you may need to have them put the dogs up or somebody put the dogs up unless the animal helps the person feel calmer. My cat Mojo will sit on my sit on my lap and he'll make biscuits on my chest. Um, And he, he's a good little boy. He, he's not distracting. My dog, on the other hand, no. And turn off the TV and radio. There, there's no reason to have that on during the interview. Try to involve family and friends when possible so they can reinforce what you're talking about. And listen with your eyes, your ears, and your heart. So... You can see that they're struggling. You hear they're trying to tell you something. So your heart, the compassion will come in. So, for example, if somebody can't remember a word they're trying to think of, um, give them a prompt. So somebody's trying to tell you what they want to eat, and but he can't remember the word pizza. Ask what it looks like. He's like, I for dinner I want... I, <sighs> and you can say, okay, you know... I need a little more than that. Tell me what it looks like. Sometimes, you know, I forget things are t- right on the tip of my tongue too. And help the person work through it. Communicate in a place that's comfortable for the person. So if they, you can avoid having them come into a real sterile clinic where they feel like they're, you know, surrounded by white coats, great. If you, if they have to come in, try to make your environment as conducive and comfortable as possible. Don't argue over the correct answer. If somebody is experiencing dementia and they are talking to to their wife and they call the person their mother and, you know, sometimes the wife will get really upset because I'm not your mother, um, encouraging the person to just take a breath, to remember that they get confused and arguing with a person with dementia is kind of like arguing with a person with schizophrenia. Their reality is their reality at the moment and we need to join them in their reality. And instead of trying to argue whether the sky is blue or gray. Um, Remember the good old days. Remembering the past is often a soothing and affirming activity. Many people with dementia may not remember what happened five minutes ago, but they can clearly recall what happened five years ago. They can remember their kids graduating from high school or college or the birth of their first grandchild. Avoid asking questions that rely on short-term memory, such as what somebody had for lunch because they may not remember. And try to ask general questions about the person's past. So if they have gaps, we're not poking at them. So, you know, tell me about something from when you were raising your kids. Reality orientation therapy is a psychosocial approach that employs formal or informal classes that reorient the client by means of continuous stimulation with repetitive orientation to the environment location, date, names, personal information, so they go over it repeatedly to help people stay focused. So in the morning, you know, tell me where you're at, what your name is, what month is it, yada, yada. Activities such as category sorting and games can be used to stimulate language, increase active engagement in the environment, and decrease purposeless behaviors. So sometimes people need to feel engaged. They need to feel like they've got something to do. So giving them things to sort, especially if it's something useful, like having them help you organize the pantry can be useful. Um, But you can do other simpler things like having them separate clothes and put the darks in one pile and the whites in another. Spaced retrieval training is an intervention that gives individuals practice at successfully recalling information over progressively long intervals. It's increasingly being used to teach new and forgotten information and behaviors to persons with dementia, such as helping them or improve their orientation to place. So if they, the therapist will walk in and they'll say, um, "Hi, do you know where you're at?" If the client doesn't know, they says, he will say, "You are um, at XYZ treatment facility," and, and the client will go, "Okay," and then ten minutes later, or so. The therapist will ask, do you remember where you're at? And if the client says, I'm at XYZ treatment facility, score. Then he'll wait 15 minutes the next time before he asks it. See if the client can remember for 15 minutes. And they keep doing it till they hit the duration where the client can't remember it. And then we know, all right, their their memory capacity is, you know, 37, 35 minutes right now. So that's what, where we'll start. We'll tell them, you're at XYZ treatment facility. And then we'll start from there and keep trying to get them to remember that. This is also helpful in getting people to look at activity calendars and daily schedules and train people who've been injured, for example, with hip fracture, to remember to lock wheelchair brakes before standing and transferring. So having them say, what do you need to do before you get out of your wheelchair? Lock the brakes. Okay. Then 10 minutes later, ask them, tell me again what you need to do before you get out of your wheelchair? Lock the brakes. SRT encourages recalling information over increasingly long periods of time, increasing the intervals until you get to figure out how long a person can retain information for. And then you continue to work from there. You know, if they can remember it for 35 minutes, that's their limit. Great. Have them remember it for 35 minutes. And then the next time go for 40. And just try to inch it up a little bit each time. The strength of the association between concepts and semantic memory depends on how often they're activated. So, frequently ask the person, Where are you? What do you do when you get up in the morning? Where do you keep your glasses? What do you do before you get out of the wheelchair? Don't expect, uh, we've moved on to specific tips for people with FASD. And, you know, people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, it's a spectrum, maybe very, very mild, maybe very, very profound. Um, So it's going to be important to take it on a case-by-case basis and remember that a lot of them have never been diagnosed, um, but they've had a cognitive impairment since birth. Don't expect them to be reasonable or act their age. Like I said, they may be able to talk the talk of a 26-year-old, but they may only understand on the level of an 8-year-old. So if you expect them to understand on the level of a 26-year-old, you're going to be setting both of yourselves up for frustration. Regardless of what kind of cognitive impairment it is, if somebody is in a no loop, they're just feeling contrary that day. Go for a few yes responses first. Ask them questions you know they're going to answer yes to to get them out of the no loop and kind of give you some distance and get away from that negativity zone. Be as non judgmental as possible because 99.999% of the time, people with cognitive disabilities and cognitive issues are not trying to be oppositional or challenging or troublesome. Um, So we want to refrain our judgment and look at it with curiosity. I'm wondering what is motivating this behavior that, you know, I can adjust because we can adjust the situation, we can adjust the environment to prevent troublesome behaviors. Start with a clean slate each day. People with cognitive disabilities, including Alzheimer's, you know, Wednesday may be a really bad day. And you may not even know what triggered all of the acting out behaviors that day. It doesn't matter. Thursday is a brand new day. The person went to bed, got up, let's try it again. And don't hold it against them. They may not even remember Wednesday. Um, So if you walk into the room and you're already tensed up and irritable, like, oh, here we go again, they're going to perceive that it's not that they are dumb it's not that they are not able to communicate people are with cognitive impairments are just as sensitive to nonverbal communication in many cases Um, people with fasd have difficulty interpreting nonverbal communication but they're sensitive to it be extra careful of your nonverbal and paraverbal communication and paraverbal is how you say what you say so if i say Can you pick that up for me, please? That's very different than pick that up for me or pick that up for me, please. Even though I said the same words, my tone of voice was much snarkier, for lack of other terms, um, the other way I said it. And sometimes if we're in a hurry or we've had a bad day, our paraverbals may be a little bit harsh when we don't intend them to be. So you may need to back up and say, all right, I put this person on the defensive because I sounded irritable or aggressive, so backing up. The person with an FASD may not understand all the words you're using when they're going through a crisis, but they are likely tuned into your appearance and sound. So if you look like you're scared to death, that's not going to help them feel any more comfortable. So keep your wits about you, and remember that they're extremely aware of nonverbals. Now, sometimes they oversexualize nonverbals, and they're a little bit too overt, um, but it's important to be aware that they are very in tune to your, what you're communicating non-verbally. Don't get frustrated if you just dealt with this same type of issue yesterday. People with FASDs cannot remember. If they have five days and they've done the same thing five days in a row, on the sixth day, they may do it again, and you're like, didn't you... You've done this five days in a row. This is the sixth time you've done it. In their mind, it's the first time. It's a completely unique incident, and it's not related to any of the others. They can't draw those connections. It's not that they're not paying attention or trying to test your patients. Their brain's just not making that connection. Try to accommodate behaviors, not control them when at all possible. For example, if a person insists on sleeping on the floor, put a mattress on the floor to make him or her comfortable. Remember, like I said earlier, if it's not hurting them or encroaching on anybody else's space or you know rights, if they can do it, you know if you can accommodate it as best as possible, do so. Um, if they want to go outside and go on a walk and it's pouring down rain, as long as it's not dangerous, thunderstorming, you know, if you can get bundled up in in rain gear then that might be something that you can accommodate. Remember, we can change our behavior or the physical environment. So we can try to alter and remove triggers and make what we want them to do more rewarding. Changing our own behavior will often result in a change in our loved one's behavior or our client's behavior. So if we're frustrated... And we're communicating that, even if we're just telegraphing it non-verbally, they're going to pick up on it, and they're likely going to get frustrated as well, and it's going to be a downward spiral. Remember to check with the doctor first. A lot of times, behavioral problems have an underlying medical reason, such as pain or adverse medication side effects. So making sure to, you know, rule out those biological things that could be relatively easy, easily addressed. Sometimes the person may not be able to articulate that they're in pain. And remember, behavior has a purpose. People with dementia typically can't tell us what they want or need when they get into the later stages. So they might do something like take all the clothes out of the closet on a daily basis. And we wonder why. It could be because they want to be busy and productive and they don't feel like they've got anything else to do. They don't want to watch TV all the time. Or it could be because they're hot or too cold or really uncomfortable and they're looking for something else to wear. They're trying to communicate to us that this isn't working for me today. Always consider what need the person might be trying to meet with their behavior and when possible, try to accommodate them. So try to figure out what's the benefit of this behavior to this person and redirect them to something else that you might prefer them to do. What works today may not work tomorrow because multiple factors influence troubling behaviors, including how much sleep they've had, the weather, what time they got up. There's a variety of things. And the natural progression of the disease process in many of these clients, some days are going to be much worse than others. The key to managing difficult behaviors is to be creative and flexible in your strategies to address any given issue. So have three or four strategies to handle a behavior So when it happens, you have a couple things to try. Behavior is triggered. It occurs for a reason. It might be because of something a person did or said, a change in the physical environment. Um, We don't really know. The route to changing behavior is disrupting the patterns that we create. So figure out what happened that triggered it and disrupt that pattern. Try a different approach. Try a different consequence, like using positive redirection. Instead of getting angry and saying, no, you need to put all those clothes back in the closet, positively redirect them to something else that you prefer they do. So they have an option. Or if you start to see that every day at 4 o'clock this happens, give them an alternate behavior at 3.30 so they're doing something when that rolls around. Other tips, create routines and stick to them. Eliminate distractions from the classroom or home environment or whatever environment we're talking about. So, what's really important is at the forefront. Use a cue if the person starts to get distracted or agitated when you're talking to them. Um, you know, you can you can use a hand cue. You can hold up a finger. Whatever it is that works for that person, use a cue and help them understand that that's their cue to either get back on focus or identify the fact that they're getting agitated and start calming down. And sometimes, you know, with somebody who has advanced dementia, you may need to hold up your, hold up your finger, for example, and go, okay, we need to take a breath, and then use, mo- model it for them. Only post necessary information such as schedules, facility expectations, and information that's to be used for instructions or daily living. If you're going to have them do a project, like set the table, Show them what the process or completed project looks like first. And even like if they're putting away their clothes, take a picture of what the closet looks like when everything's put away completely. So then they can look at it and go, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like. Establish clear starting and ending times for things. Watch the person to ensure that he doesn't lose focus when he's doing something because it's easy to, you know, get caught up. Practice reciprocal conversations with the person. Make sure they're still engaging as much as possible. This will help keep those mental connections going. There are activities in the social skills toolbox that you can use, and you can look at that when you've got time, but there are a lot of different activities that you can use with adolescents as well as well as people with FASD and older people with dementia. Working with people with cognitive impairment can be frustrating. It's important not to confuse chronological age with communicative age. Kiss. Keep it simple, Sam. Eliminate distractions. Don't expect short-term memory, so use pictures, lists, and storyboards to prompt people, even if you already told them something today. Spaced retrieval training has been shown effectiveness in improving memory in people with cognitive impairments. Many people with FASD will present in mental health practices without an FASD diagnosis. Many clients who misuse alcohol and or try to self-detox can precipitate a cognitive impairment through thiamine deficiency or causing a stroke in that second phase of detox. So it's important as clinicians that we conduct ongoing assessments for cognitive impairments whenever we see our clients. The University of Kentucky has some free CEUs for nurses, social workers, and CNAs. LPCs weren't listed in there. Um, And there is an Alzheimer's care curriculum that is available online if you have a client who is a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's or if you work with people who may have Alzheimer's. I apologize for running a couple minutes over. If you have questions, I am happy to stay around and talk about them. If you don't, Have an amazing weekend this weekend, and I will see you on uh, Tuesday. All righty, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Um, Feel free to email me at dr.snipes at allceus.com if you think of any questions and you want me to try to address them.